Hi, I'm Mark Roderick. Coming up on Front Row, Governor Cooper calls for an assault weapons ban. The General Assembly gets down to business. And did U.S. policymakers get it wrong on inflation? Next. Major funding for Front Row was provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the lightning round provided by Body Knoll Foundation, NC Realtors, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, and Helen Lockery. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. Welcome back. Join in the conversation. Mitch Kokai with the John Locke Foundation. Republican State Senator Vicki Sawyer, Democratic State Senator Jay Chaudhry, and Nelson Dollar, Senior Policy Advisor, North Carolina Speaker of the House. Mitch, let's begin with Governor Cooper's statement on the assault weapons ban. Within a day of the school shooting in Uvalde, Texas, uh, Governor Cooper released a professionally produced video that basically uh, had a couple of messages. One was for Congress, calling for a requirement of universal background checks for guns and also a return of the national ban on assault weapons. He also called on Republicans in the state legislature to deal with some gun reform issues that Democrats have proposed uh, at the state level. Basically, he was very conspicuous in this and calling on Republicans to move toward uh, the Democratic position on these issues, even signaling near the end of the video that if Republicans refuse to go along with the measures that he wants, that people in North Carolina should elect new leaders. So it gives you a sense that this is uh, more than just a message about does that he school shooting. Issue? Oh, I, I, I am assuming that he certainly does. Uh, it's a stark contrast, of course, to what happened with uh, Republican Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, who after the school shooting then ended up speaking at the NRA convention, unlike some other uh, Republican officials who backed away from the NRA. And after Lieutenant Governor Robinson spoke at that convention and made some statements about the, the use and the importance of having guns, Governor Cooper came out and said that, uh, that those statements shamed and disgraced North Carolina. So this is certainly going to be an interesting issue moving forward. Jay, you have floor. Well, look, I, I'd say first, as a parent, nothing is uh, tougher and more emotional than processing the shootings in Texas and how to have a, have a conversation with your kids about it as we did as a, a family. You know, Governor Cooper's uh, call on limiting access to guns really echoed President Biden's speech that he gave um, last night. It's something that North Carolina Democrats have called for. But I mean, I think the choice is clear, and I think that's been laid out through Governor Cooper's veto. I mean, we can either do something or we can do nothing. I think uh, this session in Raleigh, we've done nothing. We're seeing really not much action in Washington. And on the and on the other side, as Mitch mentioned, you've got uh, Lieutenant Governor Robinson who goes down at the NRI and seems more interested in protecting the NRA than he does uh, protecting the children. I think from my perspective, the fact that we can't pass common sense gun reform is a, a political indictment of our system on polarizing issues. But at the same time, we know that there's a will because after the Parkland shooting, a Republican governor and a Republican General Assembly passed common sense gun reform. So it's possible. Vicki, is this uh, a breakdown of society? Is this more societal, a moral decay? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up because I was looking at crime statistics in our major cities and although crime is down 5%, there's gun violence and homicides up 30%. But it's actually not in the whole entire city. It's actually in those areas that are in poverty, disadvantage, where the breakdown of the family unit has occurred. You know, I look to my own church and my own faith community. Um, I really think that this is something that the government will never be able to solve. I think that we need to look 
as um, in ourselves and our own faith and, and different community organizations to come together to try to solve these problems. President Biden, Nelson, said that the uh, Second Amendment is not absolute. Well, he has said that, but that's just not the culture of the United States. And the ban. Well, is there ultimate, uh, uh, the Democrats, did they want to get rid of the uh, Second Amendment, Jay? No, I, I mean, a absolutely not. I mean, the, the Second Amendment's not absolute. I mean, we, we know that there have been rulings that uh, the Second Amendment shouldn't be uh, given to someone who's had a felony conviction. I, I've advocated for folks that are on the terrorist watch list shouldn't get guns, so it's not absolute. Not, and, and Democrats aren't certainly advocating for that. We're advocating for things that no, have so uh, broad popular support. Well, what, what the General Assembly, what the Republicans in the General Assembly have been focusing on is making our schools safer. That's been the key issue. So we've built up the Center for Safer Schools. We've required threat assessment teams. We've been providing peer-to-peer -peer, uh, support programs. We've been funding, uh, particularly after 2018, we had a study committee. We put together more funding for peer-to-peer -peer support, school safety grants, so you can get more school resource officers uh, in our schools, have better counseling services, uh, make the, the, the facilities themselves safer. We have an app that we put forward so that students themselves can anonymously okay. report safety concerns. And this year, for the first time in the nation, um, in the next year, we are going to be opening uh, a safety and threat response training center at, actually at a former high school. So, and you'll see more investment by the General Assembly this session. I'm sure we'll continue to talk about this as we go forward. I want to talk about the General Assembly. Give us a briefing on their week, my friend. Well, if you had uh, told me in 2018 when I first started the General Assembly, within one week I would vote for medical marijuana and we'd also vote for hemp. Medicaid expansion, and then to make sure that in curriculum for kids who believe in the Easter Bunny that there is no sex education, I thought you would be smoking something, but alas, here we are. And, and as Senator Chaudhry can attest to, it seems like the Senate Republicans versus everyone on these bills. Uh, first, the Farm Act, it just aligns North Carolina law to federal law to make sure that hemp production will continue to go through. Then the least controversial Farm Act that's been around. Uh, medical marijuana, now this is actually, uh, not, people on both sides are not very happy. They think some people say it goes too far, some people say not enough. So, but I can tell you that Senator Bill Rabin is very passionate about getting this passed for those people who are suffering from cancer. You know, it's, it's not, it's not unique to me to think about these same people who had asked for us to remove mask mandates for, you know, the past two years are also now saying that we shouldn't allow people to take other choice in health care when it comes to uh, medical marijuana. Medicaid expansion was a big ticket item though, right? It was a big ticket item and uh, we'll see what the folks and our friends in the house are doing right now with that. Um, but, you know, most notably it was a shift, but I think it was a thoughtful shift, especially from our Senate leader, Phil Berger, um, and it's good policy now for North Carolina. Why the change of heart by Berger? Well, I think Senator Berger articulated a number of reasons. I thought he gave a great speech that laid out a you know one that he felt like um, that Medicaid ex Medicaid was uh, expansion of Medicaid was never going to be undone, no matter what the composition of Congress or who holds the White House. I think Medicaid transformation now has allowed for a number of years of surplus. So that there was, um, and then lastly, he talked about the fact that there was an off ramp in the event the federal government didn't uh, meet its obligation. But I, I think to Senator Sawyer's point, I think it was less. It was 
wasn't entirely about Senate Republicans. I think Senate Democrats were aligned with Senate Republicans on both the Medicaid issue and the legalization of medical cannabis. I, I will tell you, it was bizarro world for me because the speeches that were given to that that were given on the floor for both those bills, you thought they were given Democratic talking points. Frankly, <laughs> the Locke Foundation has come out against this. Right, it is a new entitlement, right, Mitch? Well, it's an expansion of an existing entitlement. You would put uh, hundreds of thousands of additional people on government health care uh, when uh, putting people on a government program is generally not the right way to go. The interesting thing to me about both of those pieces of legislation that we've been talking about is they're not just Medicaid expansion and not just uh, medical marijuana as a general concept. There are a lot of details in those bills that could help sink them. The Medicaid expansion bill comes along with another health care, uh, a number of health care reforms like a certificate of need reform, right. uh, allowing nurses to practice to the full scope of their training that uh, are supply side issues and ones that the Locke Foundation has liked, but a lot of the people who like Medicaid expansion don't like them and don't want to see them happen on the, uh, the medical Perfect. marijuana bill because of the fact that it has a lot of restrictions uh, I think a lot of the people who want to see that are not real thrilled with the bill. Nelson, wrap this up in about 40 seconds. Well, look, the General Assembly created um, a two-year budget. This session came into effect in 1974 when the Democrats controlled the legislature and they didn't want the first Republican in 100 years as governor to be able to make those adjustments in the budget. So the House's position is let's get back to the original intent. Let's go back and make the adjustments that we need to make in the budget, uh, leave these major policy issues for the long session. That's where they're, they're most properly dealt with at. And let's get out of town by the end of this month. Okay, I'm coming right back to you, Nelson. The Biden administration fessed up. Inflation is a problem. They admitted it this week. Absolutely. Uh, for a decade, we were in really a deflationary environment. Uh, but the Federal Reserve, the Biden administration basically adopted the conventional thinking that inflation was a thing of the past. Government can print and spend. Transitory. Well, I'm getting to that. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, really, though, the view that government can print and spend all the money they want. And if inflation arises, well, you just tax it away. And that is fundamentally wrong. Um, it's just like if you got a sink, you start filling it, you close the drain, you start filling it with water, the overflow is not going to take it. It's going to come out more of it. So what the Biden administration, as you said, first did was say, okay, inflationary, inflation was transitory. Then they sort of changed their tune and said, well, we have to begin blaming it on pandemic, supply chains, Russia, all of those things had a play in there. Now the plan is to send out Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen to take the blame, you know, <laughs> I was wrong, the Mia Copa tour, and pass... traditional. Uh, traditional. And, Can't be the president's fault. Uh, uh, yes, that's right. <laughs> and pass the responsibility for actually fixing the problem to the Federal Reserve, which could land you in, which going to land you with higher interest rates, possibly a, a recession. Basically, it's been a failure of government for a number of years to understand the weaknesses of the global system and to unwisely cast off basic economic fundamentals. But this is a tax on families, isn't it? It is, and this is something that we all are talking about around the kitchen table. Um, you know, I'm a small business um, owner and employer, and it is very stressful for us to have to manage um, just, you know, our workforce and make sure that we retain and keep those employees. So this is the reason why you're seeing these polls that are coming out uh, with generic Republican ballots looking like it's going to be really tough for you guys, Jay, um, in the fall. But 
quite frankly, I see why, because this is serious issues facing each and every one of us. This is all driven by energy, though, isn't it, Jay? Why not just deregulate the oil and gas? Well, it's not just energy, right? I mean, I think but it, part, part... these are Biden's policies, right, that have driven this? Th- I mean, not, not entirely. I mean, I, well, I think... inflation was at 1.3... When Trump left. Well, look, I, I think I think one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that the Russian invasion of Ukraine has accelerated and made this more problematic as far as uh, as far as inflation. We know that the supply chain is contributing to that too. I mean, I I don't disagree with uh, Vicky. I mean, this will be the number one issue I think for voters to grapple with, and it's something that we feel both at the gas pump and at the kitchen table because of buying groceries. But look, I think from the Democratic Democrats' point of view, I mean, I think defense makes the best offense. And I think today, I mean, this week you saw uh, leader Dan Blue talk about the need for a gas tax holiday. We've talked about bringing some of the manufacturing back but to the United States. But isn't that a short-term States. solution, though, a gas tax holiday? I mean, we're talking, gas buddies talking about $5 a gas in July in North Carolina. Well, I think it's a short-term solution that can help us get through trans- get through inflation. But secondly, and more importantly, I mean, I think there are real issues about supply chain and making sure we bring manufacturing back. Uh, back back to the U.S. And look, I, this can't go without saying that Dan, Donald Trump's tax law in 2018 actually encouraged our companies to go overseas that has contributed to the problem. And so, I, you know, it's, it's easy to point the blame just to Democrats, but, but, but Donald hold Trump on, Hold on, hold on just a second, Nelson. Let's jump in here. Well, we've talked about inflation and haven't yet mentioned the word stimulus, which is the federal government pumping trillions of dollars into the economy and not expecting prices to go up. Uh, that is the, the, the textbook. Stay at home. Yeah, the textbook definition right. of inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. If you have the same amount of goods but a ton of more money in the economy because of various rounds of stimulus, you're going to get inflation. The Biden administration didn't seem to take that into account, even though people like a former. Clinton and Obama-era Treasury expert Lawrence Summers was saying, this is going to be a problem, probably inflation, probably stagflation. And J.B. Diamond said yesterday that we were going to have an economic storm, and he's the head of J.P. Morgan. Okay, I want to talk to Jay about the uh, student loan forgiveness plan that uh, just got started by the uh, president. Yeah, so um, a pretty big announcement in this space. But in, in 2020, just as a reminder to viewers on the campaign trail, then candidate Biden promised that he would eliminate up to $10,000 in federal student, la- student loan debt per borrower. And this week he announced that he was canceling $5.8 billion in student loan debt for more than half a million borrowers who attended now the defunct network of the for-profit college known as Corinthian Colleges. Uh, it's one of the largest discharges ever made by the U.S. Department of Education. This is a failed college. This is a failed college that engaged in a lot of uh, predatory loans right. and m- misled their students. And so, uh, you know, President Biden now, as of date, has canceled uh, student debt of up to $25 billion. He's also extended the pandemic-related uh, pauses of student loan interest payments. Um, but but Biden faces a challenge because both from Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and, and Senator Elizabeth Warren, they would like to see him cancel debt up to $50,000 uh, per borrower through executive action. Well, that gets into the trillions, doesn't it? it, it, it well, it'll get up into the billions, and I I think the president's challenge is twofold. One is whether he has the executive authority to do so, and secondly, does it make sense to ca- to cancel student debt at that at that limit based on the fact that people have other debts, and then you're prioritizing one type of debt over the other? Well, is it legal, Nelson, for well, him to do this? Does he have the constitutional authority to do this? No, he can't direct somewhere between 360 billion dollars to, like as you say, 1.8 
uh, trillion dollars in debt. I mean, if, you know, for the class of 22, this would get the award for the worst spending policy out there. It's regressive. It increases income inequality. It gives debt relief to only one group uh, of individuals. It doesn't help people, let's say, with health care debt. And even others, I mean, think about the people who actually paid as they went, who chose lower cost educational um, uh, opportunities, uh, or who have already paid off their student loans. They don't get any relief. And if you mortgaged your house, went in and, and got uh, a loan, I mean, went in and paid your, your, uh, uh, your tuition and fees, you're not going to see any of this debt relief. And what's going to happen in the future? We're going to come back and keep repeating these programs. It's ultimately not going to sell. Vicki, is this a play for millennials vote in uh, 2022? Yeah, if you look at the demographics for uh, the Democratic Party, the folks like me, right, white, educated uh, females are making up the backbone of that. There are also folks like me who still may have student loan debt. Um, so I see it as a very political play. I understand, you know, the um, reason why they want to talk about anything but inflation and, you know, the economy and, and the hardships that we're having here in, in America. But, um, yeah, to me, it's just all about the politics. Mitch? One of the interesting things about the announcement that came out this week is that this is really the low-hanging fruit. You're talking about a failed college. You're talking about just a small portion. It's $5.8 billion, which is a lot of money, but the overall debt is $1.6 trillion, so it's a drop in the bucket. Uh, and we've talked about this already, but this is something that is really geared toward upper-middle-class folks. This is not toward the, the people who need the most relief. If you're going to have the government giving relief, those folks don't have college debt. Remember, the people who have the most college debt are those who went to grad school and took out a big loan for that. They're not the people who are the first-time students getting a bachelor's degree or going to a community college or something of that sort. Jay, wrap this up in about 30 seconds. I mean, I, look, I think Mitch touched upon something that's really um, interesting about what we're seeing with student uh, loan debt is that the administration has, a, has addressed and focused on low-hanging fruit. So when you've got for-profit colleges that have engaged in predatory lending, where there's actually a provision in the contract between the student uh, that the, in, in the in the lender that allows for those debts to be canceled. I mean, I think that's where the focus ought to be. Okay, let's go to the most underreported story of the week, Mitch. The Federal Election Commission has sent letters to at least four North Carolina congressional candidates telling them you better correct the record or you could uh, pay the price for not doing so. Uh, they have a warning to, to fix their campaign finance reports. Incumbent Democratic Congresswoman Kathy Manning apparently took too much money from a, a single donor. Democratic candidate Jeff Jackson, your colleague in the state Senate now, uh, took multiple, uh, several excessive donations, and he's saying that perhaps it was because people were donating to his U.S. Senate campaign, then his congressional campaign. Also, uh, Democrat Charles Graham, a member of the House, hadn't filed a report for pre-primary at all. And then there was a Republican candidate, Courtney Gills, who didn't give enough information on her campaign. So it's interesting to see that the Federal Election so Commission... Some mistakes were made. Is, mistakes were made. <laughs> Madison Cawthorn followed his <laughs> I don't know if Madison Cawthorn did, but, you know, he's, he's on our uh, almost permanent down list. <laughs> So, so uh, he, he, but he did not get a letter this time around. <laughs> Vicki. Well, in the theme of inflation, so as of April 30th, North Carolina schools, districts, and charter schools uh, have only spent about $2.4 billion of the $6.2 billion that was given to them, uh, the federal COVID-19. Now, they do um, have until September of 2024, but again, when we we're talking about inflation and you see, again, all those dollars chasing the same type of work, it, it's a concern for 
Are people watching how that money's being spent? Is there a mechanism to do that? Well, if you've ever met our state auditor, Beth Wood, you know that she is watching how people are, are spending this money. But yes, we do have some oversight um, for these, and I'm sure that we will find things and errors as we move forward. Jay? Um, Ezra Klein, the columnist for the New York Times on Sunday, had a really interesting piece about how Democrats need to figure out a better way to deliver government programs like new health insurance plans or high-speed rail more effectively and successfully. Uh, he argues that Democrats don't do so because they're more focused on process rather than outcome. And the reason that they're more focused on process is because the party is dominated by lawyers and not managers. And I think it's a fascinating read. I think a lot of Democrats should read it because I think in when we talk about programs and how we deliver them effectively and successfully, I think Klein's piece raises a lot of issues for. So it's for a message problem for Democrats right now. I think it's a management. I think, I think it could be a management problem in making sure that you get your projects delivered on time. Nelson, a reformed lawyer, right? <laughs> <laughs> recovering. A recovery. <laughs> uh, Michael Sussman uh, was acquitted this week uh, in the first trial from John Durham's investigation into the origins of Russiagate. However, the testimony did reveal the extent to which Hillary Clinton's campaign was pushing a false narrative that Trump, his family, his campaign was actively colluding with the Russians. Uh, in particular, a bogus story uh, shared by Clinton campaign manager uh, Robbie Mook linked uh, Trump with the Russia's Alpha Bank and a ho host of data issues. Uh, Mook testified that it he discussed it with Hillary and she agreed that they needed to share it with reporters. Of course, candidates lying about each other is nothing new, uh, but the government's in later engagement with the narrative that everyone knew was false really was unprecedented, and I think we're going to be looking more of that in the future. But Sussman was acquitted, but that was in D.C., right? And by the way, I saw like four of those folks either contributed or supported Hillary. Right, three were uh, uh, Hillary. Hillary. Right, three, three were Clinton donors. Uh, one of them's daughter played, uh, you know, little league with Sussman's daughter. So, but. I think the important thing. DC's incestuous. Yeah, really, the important thing is is will be uh, Durham's next uh, prosecution in the fall. But really, the the narrative that he will lay out that will go with the uh, Mueller report to let us know the full story. Okay, let's go to the lightning round, Mitch. Who's up and who's down this week? Who's up? Potentially North Carolina taxpayers. We've already alluded to the fact that Senate Democrats are talking about this $200 rebate. They're tying it to the gas tax, although it would actually use some of the surplus money rather than gas tax funds. Republicans have responded that perhaps uh, it ought to be a little bit more broad-based and long-lasting than something that might look like a gimmick. But, hey, if taxpayers are going to benefit or people are talking about that, they might be up. Down, North Carolina public school students According to their teachers, in the latest North Carolina teacher working condition survey, three out of four of them say that their students have fallen behind academically, and they have concerns about them socially, emotionally, and medically, too. Vicki? Well, continuing with the theme in the Senate this week of, I think, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, uh, the people who are up is a happy hour. So uh, Tim Moffitt in the House has actually asked for that to be given to cities and do ordinances, uh, something that's been outlawed since the 1980s here in North Carolina. Uh, down, again, the alcohol theme is running thick today, uh, private clubs uh, for alcohol sales. So we've seen these absurgence of these things called speakeasies now. They're just trendy bars, and so they're saying that they should not be able to or have to uh, require private information given to them so somebody can go in and get a drink. Jay. 
Um, well, who's up? I think uh, Senator Soria would agree with me. I mean, Senator Bill Rabin, who passed the medical cannabis um, legislation, it was called the Compassionate Care Act. I can't actually think of a more compassionate individual to shepherd a bill that has an amazing amount of respect on both sides um, of the aisle. And one of our colleagues called it a best practice in the way that he gathered input from stakeholders for that bill. Uh, who's down, at, same as Mitch, uh, North Carolina students. I mean, not only have they followed, fallen behind academically uh, during the pandemic, but their social emotional health needs are greater than they were in the pandemic. And I hope that's something that we can continue to focus on based on the teacher survey you talked about. How does a medical marijuana bill do in the house? I think that it's going to be interesting to see. It's a major piece of legislation. Clearly, uh, Senator Raven is highly respected on, in both chambers, and it's a um, it, it's an issue that people need to give some very, very, very serious consideration to. Okay, who's up? And who's down this week, my friend? Uh, who's up? Johnny Depp, aka Jack Sparrow. He won his lawsuit against former wife Amber Heard. Uh, the jury found that. Both of them were Great liable. Soap opera TV, I oh thought. yes, both of them were uh, liable for defamation. However, they awarded Depp fifteen million and heard only two million. So, just like the movies, uh, millions of people watched the trial, and in the end, the pirate came away with the loot. So. <laughs> so, Who's down is consumer confidence. The conference board's uh, index this week showed a continued continuing downward trend uh, that began last year, uh, very much in line with the recent University of Michigan's Index of Consumer Sentiment, which hit a 10-year low in May. Mitch, headline next week, my friend. North Carolina's popular Opportunity Scholarship Program returns to courts, going to the Court of Appeals. Headline next week. The North Carolina House kills all bills that the Senate sent to them. And, <laughs> and then the Good governor luck. will take care of the big parents' bill of rights. Headline next week, Jim. I'm going to be trying to be optimistic <laughs> based on our first uh, topic. A bipartisan group of U.S. senators, including Tom Tillis, roll out bipartisan gun reform. Headline next week. We'll that's, do it, Jim. That's going to okay. be quickly, quickly. <laughs> Gas prices keep heading up while oil inventories are heading down. Okay, that's it for us. Thanks for watching. Great job, team. Hope to see you next week on Front Row. Have a great weekend. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by. Funding for the Lightning Round provided by Body Knoll Foundation, NC Realtors, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, and Helen Lockery. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.